Hey, this is BT Wolf, and you're listening to Orange Juice for the Years on Dub Lab. And today I'm joined by radical feminist, punk rock activist, and Dream Corp's CEO, Nisha Anand. As CEO of Dream Corp, Nisha works at the intersection of criminal justice reform, green economics, and tech equity to develop cutting edge solutions to our toughest problems. For example, the passing of the First Step Act in 2018. Before Dream Corp, Nisha served as Chief of Staff to Van Jones and has decades of experience in fundraising, grassroots activism and media. But Nisha's work and ethos really stands as a beautiful embodiment of finding common ground and building bridges wherever we can. Um, so it's so wonderful to have you join us today, Nisha. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me on. And we kind of, I guess, didn't directly connect, but um, we were both involved in the recent Nobel Prize Summit, Our Future, Our Planet. Um, how was that experience for you? Well, this summit took place during the pandemic. And by this time, I think a lot of groups have been experimenting with what formats work. How can we engage people in this virtual moment and from far away? And I think they did a great job of bringing together some amazing people, trying to build community, a lot of different voices. So I really enjoyed it. Um, not as much as I enjoy seeing everybody in person. I am an extrovert, so I'm looking forward to that again, too. But I thought it was a great effort for the uh, period we're living in right now. I think with a event like that you know you talk about being there in person and it's funny I'm kind of the opposite I quite like um, hiding away a lot of the time but with some of the people that were involved with that event um, it was one of the occasions I was like oh, I wish I could physically meet some of those people and and be there you know and have that whole ceremony of the experience. Yeah. And they probably wouldn't have gotten all the guests that they got if it all had to be in person, too. I, now thinking about it, they had a, quite a good roster of people. Yeah, I thought the same, you know, having it be digital opened it up in a way that was really fantastic. So the theme of this show, it's, it's called Orange Juice for the Years, and it's taken from a line by neurologist Oliver Sacks about the power of music and how deep it really goes. And that quote is, uh, music can lift us out of a depression or move us to tears. It's a remedy, a tonic, an orange juice for the ear. And I just want to know, what does that quote mean to you? For me, music absolutely was my everything. Growing up in the South, in Atlanta, Georgia, in the 80s, I was very different than everyone else around me. And I didn't have like one thing that defined me until I found the community that I found in music when I was in high school. And that community was everything. It got me through high school, got me through college. Some of my best friends now, 30 years later, come from that punk rock scene that I that I found in high school and that I was part of. And so for me, when folks ask me about my culture, I talk about, yeah, I'm Indian, I'm American, I'm Indian, I'm all these things, but I'm also a punk rock kid. It's so much a huge part of my identity. So music for me has been all of that. It found me when I needed it. And uh, anyway, I love that quote. <laughs> nice. So in addition to music, what else do you find um, to be a tonic in your life? A tonic in my life? Well, certainly my kids. I have teenagers. And it's a whole new education, raising humans and raising them to be good humans and watching them grow and being with them, seeing the world through their eyes. It certainly keeps me grounded and stay present to what's important and my work. I work in the field of social justice. I always have. I got out of college a, a little bit of a hellraiser, but also somebody who is determined to change the world and every victory, every piece of legislation we pass, everything that my team is part of that leads us to a better world, certainly a tonic. When did you first have that desire to change the world? <laughs> um, I don't know when it started. I think there's just always been that piece of me that's deeply empathetic and very compassionate. And I think being a little bit of an outsider, not fitting in, I grew up in Atlanta, and it was very much a black and white 
town and I was an Indian kid. And also I grew up with my dad. My parents divorced in the eighties, like so many parents. And I grew up with my father, which was odd already. So not only did I look different and ate different food, I also lived with my dad. I was a bit of a, of a misfit. And for me, you know, it can always have an outsider feel. But instead for me, I think I developed a deep insider feel where instead of, you know, feeling alone and apart, I just learned everything I could about everyone else. Yes, it's a bit of a survival strategy, being a chameleon and knowing how to fit in with different people in different places. But also, I think it brought me that compassion, understanding that there are, we are all struggling with something. All of us has something that needs improvement. Um, all of us are battling our own our own things in life. So, you know, I do remember it coming from a young age. I remember some of those strategies, but the first time I remember organizing was actually in, in high school. I was a young feminist and I decided I was going to stop shaving my legs because, you know, why, why do I have to shave my legs? It was, you know, one of those early thoughts. And I went to a Catholic school, a private Catholic school where we had uniforms that the girls were supposed to wear skirts. Now, I read the handbook really thoroughly and nothing said I couldn't wear the boys uniform. It was like uniforms are, and it listed, you know, one set of uniforms, which involved the kilt and the other set, which involved the pants. And so I would go back and forth, but I still wouldn't shave my legs. And then I remember getting called into the office one day and the disciplinarian, and I can't remember what her actual title was. I can't even remember her name now, but it, it was a formative moment. And she gave me this lecture about not shaving my legs. And that it wasn't appropriate and someone had complained and that's not what we do in this country. So, you know, fair dose of racism from there as well. And I remember giving her, you know, I was also on the debate team in high school, so I had a lot of big words. So I told her that she could <laughs> take her patriarchal assumptions about a woman should be and put them on someone else. And I remember getting so mad and I actually got demerits and, um, you know, like points against me. And I had to clean the lunchroom. That was the punishment for like 10 days in a row. Uh, I don't remember if it was because I didn't shave or because I talked back from her, but regardless, I then organized all my fellow classmates that would, other women, to protest this injustice and not shave their legs. And that was the first time I remember thinking about it in that way, about the collective power and about my ability to change things. It was very small, but, I, you know, very formative. No, and that's a beautiful story that paints an amazing picture um, and, you know, gives a big insight into your character and sort of where some of your later strength comes from. Um, so what was the first song that imprinted on you? Well, anyone that knew me in kindergarten and first grade is going to think I'm lying to you because they know that I was obsessed with Michael Jackson. Everything Michael Jackson, my room was postered with it. There was nothing I could do um, that didn't involve Michael Jackson. I remember a birthday party where every single gift I got, I had like 10 Michael Jackson Barbie dolls because that's all people knew about me was Nisha's obsessed with Michael Jackson. But the first song that imprinted when, when I read this question is I thought about The Cure and the song that made it to the radio was Just Like Heaven. And this came out around the same time that everyone of my generation was listening to like New Kids on the Block. And that was kind of all that was there. And I didn't like that. And I wasn't going to be, you know, tracked into choosing the boy in the boy band that was, you know, supposed to be the one for me or, or however that went. And I went to drama camp that summer. It was like fourth grade or, or something like that. And the counselor, who I thought was very cool, was like, which Cure song do you think is the best Cure song? We're going to perform that tonight. And an argument ensued between Boys Don't Cry and Just Like Heaven. And we listened to both and everyone debated it. And I remember thinking, this is much cooler than talking about which boy in New Kids on the Block. And I decided to vote for Just Like Heaven. I remember that song so well. Um, we actually taught it to my daughter. I have a video of her when she's like two years old singing the song start to finish. Like she barely knows any words herself, but can still sing the song. And it was certainly formative. I think it certainly set me off on this path of trying to discover my own way. Perfect. Well, let's take a listen to Just Like Heaven by The Cure.
that was Just Like Heaven by The Cure and that was the song that Nisha chose as the first song that imprinted on her. And you were sort of 10, 11, around that age or a bit older? I remember at fourth fourth and fifth grade, something like that. I can't remember. I must have been about 10, yeah. And was there something in that song that also really, I don't know, made you feel a certain way or, or what was it about that track in particular? I think it was, you know, honestly, it was more of the access of it. I didn't have to go too far to discover it. It did play on the radio and it was a happy song and I like the romance of it. I like the happiness of it. You can twirl and you can dance. So I don't think there was anything in the lyrics that imprinted so much. It was more of the having my own thing for other kids in Georgia. That was not their thing. And it led me to discover a lot of others, a lot of other stuff from that as well. So what else imprinted on you, you know, from a young age? You know, I know you've talked about it um, in the amazing TED talk that you gave in 2020. It was there something that you felt like you had been born into that was, you know, also part of your DNA? Absolutely. I think I was born to build bridges. And I didn't quite understand it until later looking back. But I was, like I said, a mixture of all these things that was the American dream. Like my father came to this country wanting to start this better life, provide a bigger, better everything. You know, he he talks about coming to America as, as the dream and he built it for us. And I was that for him. I was born here. I could translate any of the cultural misunderstandings that he had. I was the first in the generation to be able to choose my own path. You know, growing up in India with his family, it was, you know, you went into the same careers as your parents. You had arranged marriages for the most part. There were only a few valid, and when I say valid, you know, acceptable professions for him and his siblings. And I fought that from a young age. I was the first person to say, I I want something different and explain it in a way that made sense. And so I, I was always bridging these cultures and bridging these ways of being. And so I see myself as a bridge builder. And in high school, I found the high school debate team. And I'd like to say that, you know, it was an obvious choice for me, but I got to tell you, I joined it because the guy who recruited the people was quite cute and I wanted to be on the debate team with him and I had good enough scores. That's how they decided my test scores were high enough. So I joined the debate team because of a cute guy. But from that point, when I have to argue both sides of an issue, and I did this throughout high school and throughout college, I saw both sides of the issue. You have to passionately believe it to win a round of debate. And I started to understand the other side of the argument that you could have similar goals and very different ways of getting there. But that's a place where there can be alignment, where you can find common ground. If both of us want to, I was actually just talking about this with my father two days ago, who's a Republican and he loves to debate politics. And I'm not a a Republican. I'm certainly far, far, far to the left, but uh, he loves to debate politics. And he asked me about homelessness and I knew that he wanted to get into a political fight, but I took a different approach this time. I'm like, look, both of us agree. We do not want to see homelessness. We do not think it can exist. It should exist. And in a country as wealthy as the United States, it really shouldn't exist. He's like, I agree. And then he's like, well, what would you do about it? I'm like, well, this is where we're going to differ. I think we have different approaches, but let's keep in mind we have that same goal. And that is a good starting point for the discussions. Now, of course, we fought and we yelled and he's the one who can get me yelling more than anyone else. But coming back to that starting point is so important. And I think I've been doing that my whole life. I've been trying to be the peacemaker between arguments. I've been really trying to deeply understand where people come from. I have a few other experiences where where I really had to do some heavy lifting to make that so. But that is something from a young age, I think, imprinted is that we can come at it from different angles, but we can share the same goal. But also there's an amazing story, and I'm hoping you'll share it, of even you being able to exist from a radical example of finding common ground, you know, back when your um, father was just a a baby. Um, So my father was born during the partition time in India. And during the partition, this was when England left India. And there was a lot of questions about what kind of country would India be. And there was all of these different groups and people fighting for power and, you know, what's it going to look like? And as they're leaving, they just drew an arbitrary line. 
This will be the dividing line between India and Pakistan, the partition. And if you were on one side of the line, you're now in this country. If you're on the other side of the line, you're now in this country. And that ushered in the largest forced migration in human history. And people traveled across this border in either direction. And my family found themselves on the Pakistan side, and they were all Hindu. And my dad was the youngest of several children at that time. And there's the story of them going into hiding. And I, I heard the story growing up about how they went into hiding because people were also being killed on the streets. Not just did you have to find your way to another country, but you had to hide because there was a lot of violence happening from state violence and vigilante violence for sure. And so my parents hid, uh, my family hid. And at one point, and this is how the story goes, is my father started crying when the house was being searched. And my grandma took him in her arms and shook him to try to get him to, to be quiet. And my grandfather had decided at that moment he was going to have to kill my father, sacrifice him so that the rest of the family could live. Because if they were found out, they would all be dead. And the family who was hiding them would all be dead. So my grandma's trying to, to quiet him and just in the moment before. And of course, I'm sure they've dramatized it for me over the years. But in that moment in which he was about to be sacrificed, he stopped crying. And I grew up hearing that story. And it is a huge, you know, part of me. And I think about all the different types of violence, sectarian violence, and different cultural violence. And I think about, you know, this moment and how personal it is for me. But the other part of the story that no one told me growing up and I, you know, I really don't know why they didn't tell me until I was older, but it came out. And of course, this is obvious. The family that was hiding them was a Muslim family. And at that moment, Hindus and Muslims were supposed to hate each other. And in a lot of ways, they still do. You know, there's still this type of fighting that's going on with the rise of Hindu fundamentalism. It's still this long fight. But in that moment, there was a Muslim family that chose above all else, above all divisions, to hide the Hindu family because they are people. This is a family. They are kids. Their humanity connects them to each other more than anything that was created to divide them. And they hid my family. And at one point when their house was being searched, they were asked to swear on the Quran that they weren't hiding anybody. And they swore on their holy book that there was nobody in their house. And that is something that since I've been told that I've been floored. That is what is possible and available to all of us when we look at what's shared, our shared humanity. We can do that for each other. And so when folks say, oh, I can't talk to so-and-so, they voted for Trump, or this person had an ignorant tweet, so I will never speak to them again. I just think of the things that we have bridged before, the divides we have mm. crossed, the things that were just like, this was a life or death situation and still could find our way back to each other, that to me shows what's possible. In our human hearts, it's part of the condition that we've, we've forgotten about and I'd like to get back to. And that very much is a part of who I am. Hearing that just incredible and heartwarming but heart-expanding story, it makes so much sense in a way in terms of, you know, your empathy, your capacity for love and and building those bridges because you obviously didn't know it on a mental level but you exist also because of that amazing embodiment and example of finding that common humanity in an extreme situation so I, I think that's just amazing. Um, so what was the first album that you feel had a had a real impact on you and shaped who you are? I have to say, and this is obviously something that you would have been much more familiar with, probably, and part of your cultural upbringing, maybe. I don't want to assume. But I remember when I was introduced to the specials in the album, The Specials, it was much later, you know, like 10 years after it came out. You know, I didn't know it when it came out. We had family friends that I grew up with that were part of the same school district. We went on vacations together, and their family was a family full of musicians. And the older brother, I remember him introducing me to several, and I told you I really wanted to know different music. And I heard this album, and it was curious to me. I didn't understand what ska was really at that point. But there was this whole scene that existed that I knew nothing about which of course intrigued me. And in Atlanta at that time, there was also a ska scene and it's very similar to uh, what transpired all around the world. And there was the racist skinheads and the anti-racist skinheads and that, 
you could be part of this whole music scene. It was very clear. If you were part of this part of the music scene, you had an anti-racist stance. I loved everything about it. The whole two-tone element. I wore black and white checks for all of middle school. I put black and white check on everything and kind of the symbol that black and white could be together. Totally basic, but clearly that introduced me to a whole world of politics that certainly shaped who I am. So I think about that album. I think about how I know every single song and it wasn't even of my generation. And then it introduced me to all this other music and it actually was the gateway into punk rock. Because if I went out to a small club in Atlanta and saw a ska band, there was going to be a punk band after it. And that was my gateway into what became my community. So all of the ska bands I discovered through the specials was the big idea. It was certainly the big idea that set me on that path to punk rock. Nice. Okay, well, let's take a listen to Nightclub um, from the self-titled album from the specials. Sleep all day, it's the only way. I'm a parasite, I creep about at night. It's a seeing place to be. And that was Nightclub uh, by the Specials from their self-titled album. And that was the record that Nisha chose. It was your gateway into punk and it introduced you to this whole scene of people in Atlanta and that underground music. And obviously, as you said, it kind of embodies a mix, like a mix of, of so much, which, you know, you said before, you always felt like a mix of everything. Can you just expand on that a little more? Yeah, there weren't a lot of places where I fit in or where I felt at home. And there was this part of the punk rock ethos that's no matter who you are, no matter where you come from. And in fact, the more diverse backgrounds you come from, the more accepted you are. Whatever was mainstream, you don't need to be mainstream. You can be the furthest thing from mainstream. And this is your place. And that meant that I was allowed to be exactly who I was and show up in this space. I actually remember going to a ska show with my prom date after prom in my, I was wearing a sari and my prom date was black from Atlanta, never heard of ska in his life. And we showed up there in a tux and a sari and had a great time. So I have a lot of great memories of just bringing whoever and whatever I was and, and showing up. And it felt really good. It felt good to be a part of something that was so youthful, but cared about politics and cared about people. It was it was people who cared about a lot of stuff. We all were against big corporations taking over uh, the way we think and what we do. There was a huge, a huge group of us that were all vegetarian and vegan. And, you know, everyone self-identified as feminist and anti-racist. And so it had all of these great things. And it seemed so much cooler than the other stuff kids my age were doing, <laughs> like drinking and partying and talking about who was sleeping with who. And, and I just, I loved every bit of it. And what did your dad think about his, you know, perfect Indian daughter with the straight A's, captain of the debate team, also as this, as you described, you know, radical feminist, punk rock activist, um, getting arrested for all these causes. What was <laughs> what was his opinion of all of that? Well, I also got to say I was a sneaky teenage girl. So I definitely remember telling him I was going to many study groups when I actually went to punk rock shows. Um, certainly got caught sometimes, but there was a lot that, that I hid from him. I do remember, you know, he wanted us to fit in. And that's a first generation experience I know a lot of other kids like me felt is that our parents really wanted to be very American. He didn't make me speak Hindi. Even if he would speak to me in Hindi, I'd, re I'd reply back in English. But he didn't need me to be the perfect Indian daughter. He really wanted me to fit in. And so there were a lot of things that I could get away with because, it, you know, I would say it was just me fitting in with the American way. But... I remember when I decided I was going to be vegan. I mean, my parents thought that was crazy. And I was like, but y'all were raised vegetarian in a country where everyone's vegetarian, but still veganism was a bridge too far. And maybe that's what our experience was, was everything I did was just a little bit too far for my dad. And when I was arrested in Burma, um, I was arrested in the military dictatorship of Myanmar in 1998. And it was an international news story 
from the day we didn't return. And it was headlines everywhere. My father was contacted immediately by our embassy, but then also subsequently by every news outlet. And it was devastating for him. And I didn't realize that. I was self-absorbed at that age, for sure. And I remember sitting there in the cell the minute I realized that the woman who organized this protest was going to call our parents and call all of our contacts. I thought, oh my goodness, my father is going to be freaking out. And that was the first time I considered his feelings. And then when I watched the newscast footage later and I saw him crying, um, it was hard. It was Mm -hmm. hard to watch. But I also knew I was going to be my own person. You know, there was certainly a way in which I think that this is part of the culture, marrying well, marrying rich, marrying up, um, being the perfect wife and the perfect mother. That was what I was told to aspire to. And it still is for a lot of women of my class and my generation in India is that's the, I mean, even in America, right? Like find yourself a good husband. And I knew that wasn't me. I knew it from a young age. And so to prove that I had to prove it To feel like I could be that, to feel like I could be this different own being that wasn't going to be the perfect pretty wife, I felt like I really had to prove it. So maybe I went a little extreme, but I, you know, I felt like I had to be the smartest, the best, the most, I had to be very strong in my convictions to go the path I went because the pull to go to the path that was set out for me was really clear Mm -hmm. and I took a very divergent course. And so maybe it was a little much, certainly I look back and It is a different person that was able to risk my life and get arrested for a pro-democracy cause. How long did you end up being imprisoned for after that? I stayed there for about a week. I was arrested with 18 other activists. We were sentenced to five years in jail, but we were deported the next day. Okay. Yeah. So I really only spent a week, a little over a week. I I think I read somewhere that you had written home to say that you were getting vegan food. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. I was, you know, it's a Buddhist country. And so they treated us really well compared to once they found out that we were internationals and we weren't from Myanmar, they had to treat us pretty well with the whole world looking at them. And so the political prisoners inside Myanmar are kept in, there's this prison called Insane Prison. That's actually the name of the prison. And an insane, it used to be a place where police dogs were kept. So these are horrible cell conditions, and that's where most political prisoners are kept. And and there are thousands of them right now due to the recent military coup that are locked up in insane and other prisons. But we are treated very well. And when I said I wanted vegetarian food, they said, oh, you know, Buddhist food, no problem. And they brought me tofu and, you know, so... It's not as horrible as it sounds. There are certainly prisons here in the U.S. that are much worse than what I stayed in in Myanmar. But again, I did not stay in what most political prisoners there are kept in. No. And obviously, that's what one realizes having that experience, you know, the privilege, you know, that so many of us have but are blind to in many contexts. Um, So when did you first become aware of that real need to find common ground? Like when was that something that kind of really presented itself to you? Well, starting with in Myanmar, the there was a representative who still serves in Congress. His name's Chris Smith. He's from New Jersey. He was on the Human Rights Commission and or the Human Rights Committee. And he came out to Myanmar to bring us home because the human rights violations that existed there and of what was happening to us. And he was a Republican. And I remember on the plane ride home to the States thinking, should I confront him about all the views of his that I think are wrong? And I realized now's not the time for that. We have a lot in common. We actually both care about human rights in Myanmar, and that could be a place to work from. So I remember that as being a pretty formative experience for myself too. But the first time it was really put to the test in a strong way was when I started working for Van Jones And this was 2013 I interviewed, so not that long ago. I interviewed for this job with Van, and we were on the phone, and he told me that we were going to pass bipartisan criminal justice reform. And I remember laughing and saying, that's an oxymoron, because I had been on the streets 
I did a lot of work on police brutality when I was younger, again, a cause that I had been arrested for. And even at the Republican National Convention in 2000, it was about criminal justice reform. And so I was out on the streets protesting, training people on these protests, and I did not see a single Republican on the streets with us. In fact, we were outside the Republican National Convention. So when he told me that we were going to pass bipartisan criminal justice reform, I thought it was an oxymoron and not possible. And then he walked me through it and it became really clear. And he told me, hey, Nisha, we come at from a justice angle. We see the criminal justice system as being really unfair and being racist since its inception. I said, yes, it is unfair. It is unjust. It is racist. It's, it's all these things. And he said, but look, on the other side, they also think that the system is bad. The fiscal conservatives think that it uses way too many taxpayer dollars and it just keeps sucking in more and more the more people that they lock up. You have the religious conservatives that believe in second chances and their anti-death penalty and they want to see redemption. They don't like the system. And you have the libertarians who believe there's too much of a government state already in a police state and that people should not be in jail for nonviolent drug offenses. They don't want that regulated the way that the criminal justice system regulates it. So you have three factions of the Republican Party that want to see change in that system. Can we work with them? And he said, I know we can. Nobody sees this yet, but we can. And we slowly built a large coalition, bipartisan, across the aisle. Under the Obama administration, we worked hard to pass legislation to change some of the worst parts of the federal criminal justice law, like the crack cocaine disparity, where if you get caught with crack, you get a much higher sentence than the exact identical drug cocaine, but one of them is used in black communities at that time, and one was more used in, in white communities. And we set about trying to pass a whole bunch of laws and got some through, but not all of them. And then when Trump came to office, we had a really difficult choice. And Van asked the whole team, he said, look, we could wait until there's a more favorable set of legislatures in Congress or in the White House. We could wait or we could keep doing the work we're doing and push it through now as much as we can. He said, I'm going to ask everyone on this team to do the latter, to push as hard as we can and to not stop because the people in prison do not care who got them out if you are a Republican or you're a liberal. What they care is their home, and we have to bring them home. And so our bill went through, and in a Republican House, in the Trump administration, in the Senate, it was 87 yeses for our bill called the First Step Act. To date, it's brought 17,000 people home. And yes, we had to get Trump to sign that bill in the end, and we did. We weren't well loved by everybody. And certainly on both sides, you know, there were Republicans who thought this is a jailbreak bill and you're letting people, you know, criminals run free. But you also had a lot of people on the left. How could you work with these Republicans? How could you work with Trump? It didn't go far enough. We could have done more. So there was a lot from both sides that they didn't like. But the majority of people in the middle saw this not just common ground legislation we could put across, but also common sense legislation. And I'm really proud of that piece of legislation. It's actually a model for a lot of the other work we do, what we're doing right now on climate legislation and getting America back to work in good, clean, high-paying jobs to lift people, you know, solve pollution and lift people out of poverty at the same time. Do you see the shifts in you that had to take place um, from, you know, your young activism days to then having had that experience? What do you think, what, what changed in you through that realization that something like that could happen? I debate this a lot, BD. I don't know if it shifts so much as growth. Sometimes I wonder if young Nisha, the activist on the street, who was, you know, chaining myself to buildings and all sorts of things if I would consider myself kind of a sellout. I think before I didn't want to be in the room with the powerful people. I thought they were all corrupt. Mm. And now I think, now I think it's worth it. Now I think I can be that person that fights for it. So there it is a big shift. I would have never entered the Trump White House. There are a lot of people who I respect who still wouldn't and that's that's okay. But it's a new way to look at by whatever means necessary. Mm. And I now understand power as not being the thing that is a problem. Of course, power can corrupt. But I also think of the people power that has changed the world. And that's the kind of power I'm interested in. And I don't mind creating solutions that weren't ones that I thought of when I was young. Mm. And my radical way might not be the only way or even the best way. I also think, you know, there's something about, and, you know, it's a hard thing to say, 
because we so much identify with our personality and our identity and what we've grown up believing and experiencing and kind of putting our identity into but it's almost like if you can just get that all out the way that ego ultimately in the sense of it's our it's the personality part of the human being it's not the shared consciousness or shared commonality and so by getting that out of the way even in the most extremely challenging situations um, to be able to impact so greatly so many numbers of lives in a positive way, surely that has to be the best possible outcome, you know, rather than X or Y being right or, or patting themselves on the back, you know. And that's what speaks volumes and that's what we have to work toward in any ways that we can with whatever we do. I mean, I, I see it in a different way and the stuff that I do just because we silo everything, you know, from such a young age, we kind of put ourselves in, in a box and we say what we are and then we don't talk to people that are in other fields. You know, those fields don't cross pollinate and we have all these self-imposed limitations you know as human beings that often come from education and upbringing and you know a lot of stuff that's been kind of imposed but ultimately you know I think the the best stuff is when we get beyond all of that and we come human being to human being but it's very difficult to do that sometimes. Uh, you are so right I think that ego piece and that need there's like this human need to be right um, that gets in the way. It really does. I think you really nailed it right there. Um, and if we can step out of the way and not worry about being right, but something else will emerge. It can. Then the other person can put down their ego too when you're not worried about being right. So yeah, I think it is so important. So looking at today, because um, I feel and I think you've mentioned it as well, that that um, division, that sort of tribalism is is more extreme today probably than it ever was in some ways. What do you think has caused that and how can we find a way back to the commons, as you call it? I don't know. I don't know if you heard, I took a deep breath because I don't know all the causes of it, but I certainly can point to some of them when we're looking at the media we're consuming and the information we're consuming. I remember growing up, it really was, you know, one newscast and journalists were the only people on TV were the journalists who were sworn by the facts. Now on TV, we have opinion editors and commentators and folks who get to interpret all the facts, however they want. And people hear it and listen to it and think that's news. And then that has now transformed onto social media, where I can sit and click forever and only see opinions just like mine. So then you're in this kind of confirmation bias and all of the media you're consuming, and it's everywhere. I remember when smartphones first came out and I fought it and I thought, these are going to make us all stupid. And, um, and now I can't live without it. And that's what people are consuming. So you can go your entire life only listening now to people who sound just like you, think just like you, and will reinforce the ideas you have. So then when you encounter somebody who thinks differently, there's something really wrong with that person. How could this person possibly think X? Everyone knows it's Y. That's what we've now been raised in. And I don't know how to break that down. I don't know how to break. I mean, of course, people have ideas like follow, you know, accounts that aren't like you and read these types of books. And for every one of these you do, you should listen to that. Sure, all of those are some solutions, but there has to be a massive intervention that says, I want to know the other person. I want to know the people who aren't like me. We've taken the mystery out of life um, by thinking that we know everything already. Mm -hmm. And I want to just get to that place where we're curious again, where we think that the world is fascinating and undiscovered and every human being is this new kind of creation that we could discover that, you know, you might be a stranger today, but if I get to know you, you're not a stranger anymore. That curiosity is really missing. I don't know where that where we started to lose that. I don't know the origin. I think discernment. I think discernment and, um, you know, and also the ability to have 
complicated, difficult conversations. Right. And, you know, not just mute something or silence something or write this outraged reply. And I think that distance that obviously the digital world has created and that sort of separation of the human, the real human being from the, this facade or this shard of that personality, it means we really can also have outrage in those reactions and then, you know, respond from that place instead of being in the room with someone and having a difficult conversation, which, you know, there's really no shortcut for and right. I think that that the inability to really debate difficult subjects and the, the arise of cancel culture yeah totally no I'm totally feeling it I was a debate nerd debating the ideas was everything that was my education that's how I learned so much more about life than anything I was taught in school was having to craft my argument and now we want to create safe spaces where you don't hear challenging ideas and I think everybody deserves to be physically safe and they should not be threatened as their person and you know I want to create a world where everyone is physically safe and we don't have to be worried about violence. But I do not want you to be intellectually safe. You have to debate your ideas and talk about them. And that was like, I told you, I fight with my father all the time around politics. You don't get stronger at the gym by lifting the easy weights. You have to lift the heavy weights and practice your arguments and listen to the other side and, and really get somewhere. So I, I agree. We have to have the difficult conversations. We have to know, you know, every side of the issue in order to, to solve it. So I agree with that. You said something else, which I believe wholeheartedly. And again, in a sort of slightly different context from my experience, but that nature of discomfort and how important discomfort is to, well, getting out of our comfort zones, obviously. But, you know, with creativity, all the best stuff happens when you're you know, you're trying to touch the bottom of the ocean or the pool or whatever, and it's just a little too far. That whole feeling of being, you know, out of your depths, um, that's when the breakthroughs occur. And as you said, it's it's also any major change societally, politically has been preceded with, you know, a period of discomfort. Just talk about that a little. You're right. That's when the, the most growth happens. You know, there are all these studies that you have to be pushed to that outer limit in order to grow. And I think the breakthroughs are at this moment that's uncomfortable. And we almost had one. You asked me a minute ago about coming back to the commons. But when the pandemic hit the world, it was a global phenomenon. And it, we were unsure of what the impact would be. And there was this moment in which the whole world paused. And we went into kind of this, you know, the shelter in place. And everyone was watching the news and wondering what was going to happen. And soon we realized that there were certain people that we had been counting on for survival that we hadn't even thought about the farm workers, the grocery store workers, even, you know, restaurant employees. And we started calling them essential workers. And folks cheering, giving extra money, clapping, giving healthcare benefits to all of our essential workers. And then we added on frontline workers, all the people in the hospitals who really were the ones doing the hard work. And then for me, what was really true was teachers. My husband's a teacher, but teachers, man, we realized how undervalued and underappreciated they are for what they do. And so there was this moment that was highly uncomfortable, but we could all see each other's shared humanity. And, and I just kept thinking this could be the breakthrough. This could be the breakthrough back to the commons where we realize how interconnected we are, how well we take care of a grocery store employee is directly has a direct correlation to how healthy I can be as not a grocery store employee who's dependent on them. And there was a moment in which I thought that that breakthrough was going to happen. And I think it's still possible. I think we're debating things like the infrastructure bill in, in the U.S. because of that, because we realize we can't let our essential work force ever suffer like they have in the past. Um, that's a moment of uncomfortability. What was more uncomfortable than the last year we went through? Sometimes you have to have extreme things to push us to grow. And also that means in your own beliefs, push yourself outside your comfort zone. I had to work with, with the Trump White House to get this bill passed. You know, it's definitely not in my comfort zone. And yet from it, we now have a strong coalition and people on both sides that want to continue working together. So we can push forward on other issues now, too. Uh, that's what can come from it. And I mean, we need it. 
I couldn't agree more. And that is, you know, such a good thing to remind us all of. We can change. We did make a shift. You know, we did start seeing people as essential. And, you know, all the other interconnected points that you made there, I think we are all so connected. And that is the truth of it. In the same way that nature is interconnected, we have so much to learn from nature from the natural world I mean it's it's all there um, but you know the human ego as we talked about is pretty um, tremendous <laughs> and uh, now we just have to get things back in in perspective so with that in mind what's the music you would send into space so I thought about this and I thought that I would and of course you've sent music into space so I don't know if I'm thinking about this in the right way but I was thinking what do I want the entire world to know existed and it has to be that little that little small subset of punk rock that really did save me and give me so much of who I am today and so I picked a band from Atlanta that only existed pretty much while I was in high school and very few people outside this Atlanta kind of hardcore music scene would have known but it's a band called car versus driver that uh people i was friends with were in and the song is called without a day i used to play it on my radio show in college and i just i loved the sound of the song but i thought it would be the thing that screams to the universe we existed this small you know there was no streaming music you heard about the band because you bought the seven inch and you traveled you know 10 hours sometimes i'd travel to go to a show and see a band and, and that's how you discovered bands and and that's been lost these days with the streaming music. So I want the whole universe to know that we existed. So I chose one of those small Atlanta band. Perfect. So now we're going to take a listen to Without a Day by Car vs. Driver. Somehow your first taste of blood is an initiation. It is a cold hard truth that you have to live with you. Nor I will ever forget just how momentous it felt. Take a step over And that was Without a Day by Car vs. Driver. And that was the music that Nisha would send into space as this kind of record of it existing, of her experience in Atlanta at the time. Hearing this small punk rock band, I so agree. I mean, what we've lost from moving from physical to digital with music and art is profound. You know, we won't go into that because that will be a whole other episode. But, you know, bridge building, bridging the old, the new, the physical, the digital, the different siloed communities, voices, you know, ideologies. I think bridge building is one of the most important things we can do where we take the best from all of those those worlds and we're building bridges really to open up those worlds to one another so that they're not disconnected and I think about that with music because I think actually you can take the best of the old and the best of that physical experience and still have it today with the best of the digital one but think about it totally differently create a whole new plane a whole new plane and landscape for people to experience it through and I think that's what you're doing in you know your area of work and I think it's just so I think it's so needed you know and it's so important um, and so I know know you've talked about it before but what would you say to people who would argue that finding common ground is a weak position I don't think it's a weak position and I tell folks this all the time that there's this idea that when I say I'm finding common ground it sounds like compromise and I don't think it's compromise at all the easiest thing to do is to just keep shouting the same position over and over again you know, get rid of all the prisons, right? Which, you know, abolish all prisons. I could say that over and over again, but I can't get us anywhere closer to actually changing the entire prison system. So I think it's easier to stay at one pole and not move at all. What's harder to do is say, I do want to abolish prisons. That's who I am at my heart. That is a goal that I have, but I realize it's going to take a lot to get us there. So what's the first thing we can do? Well, we can change the way the whole world thinks about punishment. Wouldn't that be something? 
Because if we can transform punishment and say, if you have a mental health condition, you should not be in prison, you have now decreased a huge portion of the prison population, folks inside and folks that would have been tracked into prison. If you can just win that argument, you've abolished prison for folks with mental health conditions. That's a big deal. And so I want folks to think about it that way. Like, don't change your values, but how actually are you going to get to that position? I think it's harder. I think that the easy position is to just stay in your poll and say, I'm not going to talk to anyone who doesn't agree with me 100%. And I also tell people to look back at at my family and the Muslim family who really could have um, just done what they were told to do and not harbor any Hindus in their house to do exactly what was expected of them at that moment. But instead, they found that common ground. They found that common humanity. They put their entire lives at risk to save my family. And that, to me, isn't weak at all. And that's what I feel like I'm doing uh, when I find common ground, is really finding the harder position, the one that's going to save lives, the ones that the positions that can save humanity. It's 17,000 people home from this one piece of legislation just three years ago. I know more can be done, and, I, and I'm committed to that. I think also it's that lovely quote that the you know the consciousness that solves the problem can't be the same consciousness that created the problem. Right. So you know when when so much is created from the opposite of love, the absence of love, um, from judgment and divisiveness and hate you know which is often just fear you need the opposite consciousness to come in to solve it yeah love is hard I agree like I am certainly one of those people that just loves folks and it sounds funny and I know when I say it it's uh it's hard when people when I talk about just this is my love pure love for humans and people that motivates me but I really do think that's like going back, back, back to the first principles, I think that's what it is. Love for each other, love for all people is is really important. And love is hard. Ask anyone in a long-term relationship, love is hard. Ask anyone with teenagers, love is hard. It's not easy. It's something you have to practice every single day. And uh, it is the opposite ethos of what got us here. And I don't think you make bad decisions I don't think I've made bad decisions when I'm negotiating across the aisle, when I'm building bridges, because that love is front and center, the love for the people that have been left out and left behind. And that's what motivates me. That keeps me centered. And and I don't ever walk in a room and forget that. You can't, but that makes it possible to find common ground. Extending that love to, we've just had your the music you'd send into space. So looking at our beautiful blue marble planet, um, and all of its many sentient beings. Where do you think we are on addressing the climate emergency? I know you talked about partnering with the military in terms of you know how we might, again, find more radical common ground with facing something that is probably at the front of, or should be at the front of our minds right now. This is our moment to address it. And I don't think that I'm saying anything that's not readily available common knowledge, we have a limited amount of time to address the climate crisis. And so I want to look for absolutely any partner that I can find. And the reason why the military came up is they had published a report saying that most wars in the future were going to be compounded and increased because of climate change. There were military bases that were starting to fall as sea levels rise. So there are military bases throughout the world that don't exist anymore. To me, that's an area of common ground. Now, I've been you know, mostly a pacifist for a lot of my life, and I'm not somebody that uh, goes to war easily. And I still see that as a place where I could reach across the aisle and say, okay, you don't want your military bases to sink. You also know that resources are going to be the hardest thing to find, and it's going to cause a lot of wars in the future. So let's address climate change. Um, I think farmers who haven't usually been allies on the left are really feeling the effects of climate change. And so that's why when I say work with the military, it's not like it's not like I want the military to, to solve climate crisis. I think that they can be partners at the table. And there are a lot of businesses, too, who need to address climate changes. The businesses that are going to be the best in the future are going to be the ones that know how to work with sustainability and not use as many resources, know how to keep that kind of cycle of resources 
at bay, they're going to be more successful if they don't have to worry about it. And so there's a lot of incentive for folks to work together here. And now's the time. It should not be a partisan issue. I think there is no other time than now. Um, And I think that whole sense of timeline, that's the only thing. I remain optimistic, but obviously human beings, you know, we don't address things unless they're literally on our doorstep, getting in the way of our comfort or our convenience. So it's just how you activate awareness. You know, once we're aware of something, it's very hard to become unaware of it. But how do you really activate that awareness on a global scale? But I guess more and more freak weather events are also helping us do that potentially. So I don't know. Pretty extreme lesson. But yes, I think we are learning that way. We just now need the political will to do something about it. So Nisha, now we have to imagine a very sad time when you're no longer with us. Um, And have you thought about that, the mortal side of life or, you know, what you might be leaving behind? Um, Have you thought about your funeral? And it (laughs) sounds pretty morbid, but... Well, I hadn't until you asked me. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, You know, I have kids and sometimes I can get really sad when I think about the things I might not be around for. I have parents that are getting older who were starting to think about what the rest of their lives look like. It's really sad, but I hadn't thought about my music at a, at a funeral before. Um, I haven't thought about what would play. And actually the first thing that came to mind was everyone in my life knows I love a good 80s dance party. And my favorite 80s dance song of all time, like it comes on and I will just dance, is uh, Dancing With Myself uh, by Billy Idol. I just think it's like the perfect song. And I thought, oh, that can play at my funeral. And then I realized... I wouldn't like a dance party at my funeral. You know, I know people are going to be be sad. And I thought of this one song, and it, again, is from my punk rock days. And the reason why this one stuck with me is because the small subset of punk rock that I was in, that straight-edge hardcore thing, was very, very male and very, very masculine. So when a song like this, or when a band like this, the band is Ida, all of the girls that were part of the scene, this was for us, it felt like. And so we would sing this song all the time. I just have this good feeling of like me and my girlfriends singing the song at the top of our lungs and just feeling a certain way. And so this was the song that came to mind. But I'm going to think about it some more because, of course, I uh, I want to have good music at my funeral. But, you know, the other thing that came to mind, and maybe you've heard of this because this seems like right up your alley, is that you can get your ashes pressed into a record. Have you heard about this? Yeah, it's funny. Actually, a previous guest, Henry Rollins from Black Flag, he inquired or thought about the same idea. Yeah. So I told my husband about that because we're both huge record nerds and collectors. And he said, absolutely not. And I said, but I want to be a record. And he said, absolutely not. Well, I'll have to let him know that Henry Rollins approved it. Maybe he'll change his mind. (laughs) Yeah, he approved it and then went one step further and had a really bizarre expansion on that idea. It's funny, it's something I probably should have thought about. But uh, no, I kind of love the idea of being like just, you know, absorbed into everything, every other form. Yeah, just thrown to the wind. Um, But let's take a listen to Requator by Ida.
And that was requested by Ida, and that was the track that uh, Nisha would have play at her funeral after she decided that she didn't want to have the dance party that was the original idea. I think you could always have two sides of the funeral. You could have Billy Idol, you know, dance party side, and then you can have those who want to, to mourn. I just want to be at the dance party. Look, it's been a year and a half or more since I've been out dancing. So maybe it's just a little bit of um, that FOMO. Like, I don't want them to have an 80s dance party without me. That's what's actually running through my brain right now. (laughs) You don't want your funeral to be so much fun that you're like, fuck this, I want to be there, you know? And is there anything, and there may not be, but has there ever been something that you kind of have thought, okay, by the time I leave this planet, I would have liked to have achieved x yes of of course i've always wanted to live a life of consequence and make sure that i've left this world better and so that list i mean it can be a long list sometimes if i'm honest and i want to create a new way of relating to each other i want to get back to that and you actually named it a lot that complicated discussion that nuance, that trying to understand each other and being curious. Um, I want that to be the default instead of what we have now. I do not know how to achieve it. I want to get there. But more concretely than that, it really is my kids. I want good humans to carry on being good humans. And that's when I'm leaving this world, you know, really that's uniquely and completely from me are these other human beings who are going to create more human beings, perhaps we'll see and more human beings from that. And that's, um, Oh, it makes me cry. Just thinking, (laughs) just thinking about like leaving them after I'm, I'm gone, but those are my babies. My son turns 16 this week. Yeah. Big. That's a big birthday. Well, um, happy birthday to him from me. And what is that record that you would pass on to your kids? Well, the good news is, like I said, we have we have a large record collection. Our kids know how to play a record uh, without scratching it. They buy sometimes vinyl themselves. So they've had a good musical education um, for sure. And uh, they have their own taste in music. My daughter is really into like old 70s rock and roll. And uh, my son is really into hip hop, both old hip hop and new. And they know more punk rock bands, I'm sure than anyone their age. They've had to see our friends when they travel in reunion shows and those kind of things. So they have a good education. But I thought that of my genre of music, I want them to I want to make sure they know Jawbreaker was the band I decided they had to know. Certainly there are a lot more, but I think like this was a good band of the time. We live out here in the Bay Area, which is where they're from. So I thought I'd pass them on to the kids. Perfect. So we're going to play out in just a minute um, with Boxcar by Jawbreaker from the album 24 Hour Revenge Therapy. And just before we, we do that, Nisha, what would be the thread that connects all of your Orange Juice for the Year choices? I think the thread would be misfit. (laughs) I've just always been a little bit of a misfit, not quite fitting in everywhere, but finding my way. And I think that those are a lot of my music choices. And why, I know we've talked about it a lot, but, you know, in a nutshell, why do you think, for everyone who's listening, why do you think it's so important that we build bridges wherever and whenever we can? I think it's the only path forward. I think it's, I actually think the future of our world and the people on this planet depends on it, depends on our ability to care for one another and care about each other being being around. And that means I have to find solutions that don't just work for me and the people who think like me, but solutions that work for everybody. So that includes you. It includes the people who are very different than me. It, you know, it includes all the listeners. And you can't do that without building bridges, without at least finding the person first. So find those people that are different than you. Find a way to them and, um, and build something together. It can be anything. And we saw that a lot during this pandemic, you know, folks bringing groceries to the elderly in their neighborhood who couldn't go to the stores at the beginning of the pandemic. And you didn't ask that person their politics. They were just somebody in your neighborhood that you could help. And that's the kind of ethos that um, that finding common ground can allow. And that's beautiful. So really come 
come at it from the human being, start with the the human being and all the words and labels and beliefs and all of that can just be in the background as much as possible. Beautiful. Well, very last question. Um, and then we're going to hear part of the record that you would, or one of the songs from the record that you'd pass on to your kids. What is it that you hope to leave behind with all the work that you've done and the work that you're continuing to do? We're going to leave behind a soulful and fun and just world. I want to have freedom and dignity uh, in numbers too numerous to count. And that's the world I want to live be- leave behind is more freedom, more dignity for all people. Well, I can't think of a better way to end this episode. So thank you so much for joining us and sharing your orange juice for the years and sharing some of your fascinating, wonderful life and work. It's good to know that you're out there in the world doing what you're doing. (laughs) Um, And now we're going to take a listen to Boxcar by Jawbreaker from the record 24-Hour Revenge Therapy. Thank you so much, Nisha. Thank you for inviting me on.